Well, it's hard to believe that it's the last Sunday in January. I feel like time is, is going by so quickly this year. But um, over the past few weeks, we've been in a message series uh, called Lessons from the Light, and the light being Jesus. And we're going to clearly see that in today's passage. Uh, we're working our way through Luke chapter 11, where Jesus taught some invaluable uh, but tough lessons about what it looks like, what it means to follow him, to be all in for Jesus. Last week, Jesus addressed the skeptics and the uncommitted in the crowd. So instead of talking to his disciples and the people who were genuinely following him, he was talking to a little bit different of an audience. We learned that there are no fence sitters in the kingdom of God. There's really no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. Uh, Jesus' words in Luke 11, verse 32, he said, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. And so when you read this verse and the context, the passage that surrounds it, you know, this isn't the tolerant and inclusive language that we're so used to hearing in our culture today, but it's the truth. You jump over to John's gospel in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Um, Jesus also said these words, that you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. So if you hear the word of God and you put it into practice, you are obedient to what God teaches his followers to do. He says, you'll know you're one of my disciples if you remain faithful. And you will know the truth. And he says, the truth will set you free. You know, here at OCC, um, we're not chasing after the culture's approval. Let me just get that out there in case you didn't already know. We're not chasing after the culture's approval. We're chasing after truth. Amen? And we're learning that when we stay connected to Jesus, God actually frees us up to live the life that he's called us to live, the life we were created to live. So we're living for God's approval, not man's. The passage that we're going to read and learn from today comes right on the heels of what we talked about last week. Um, it's the same scene, right? But the tension has changed a little bit. The crowd drew in closer to Jesus, not because they were amazed, not because they were satisfied with his message, but because they wanted to see more miracles and more signs. They wanted to have a special experience and a warm and fuzzy feeling inside. They wanted to have some, something unique happen to them that would set them apart, make them look good to their friends. And as we're going to see today, our world and our generation is not that different from theirs in the first century. A lot of people today just want a sign as well, or to have a special experience that makes them feel good. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people or uh, video interviews that I've seen of, of people coming up with excuse after excuse of why they just can't get on board with, with Jesus. And it usually comes back to uh, something very similar to what we see here. They just want to see another sign. They just want to see another miracle. They just want 100% without a shadow of a doubt proof that Jesus rose from the grave. And I believe we do have substantial evidence for the resurrection. We're going to talk about that a little bit today and over the coming weeks. People just want a sign. They just want to be wowed. They just want to be moved. I think sometimes we equate the experience that we have, you know, going to the movies and seeing a great movie um, or going to a play or something, the feeling that you get from that. And then we, we try to translate that over to church. We think it's not real unless I feel something, but our feelings can be so misleading. 
Feelings are not always an accurate source of truth. And so we're going to see in our message today that our generation really isn't that different from theirs. That's what the message is all about today, is the sign that we really do need. What is the one thing that Jesus provides that is enough? And so I'm going to pray for us as we go into this passage. And like previous weeks, I'm going to pray through uh, some of the different steps of the Lord's Prayer. And I would encourage you uh, just to pray silently right where you're at this morning. And ask God to prepare your heart that you wouldn't just hear the word today, but that you would truly receive it, that you would live it out. Ask God to help you do that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we recognize who you are today. You are a perfect parent. In a world where we, we don't get that, we get that with you. You're our heavenly Father who loves us and We know that before uh, requesting our needs, before uh, asking anything, we should come to you and praise you and and just spend a few moments in worship recognizing who you are. And you you are our provider as we just celebrated at Christmas. uh, Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. So we thank you for who you are today. Today, we want to pray your agenda first. We want to submit our our lives to your plans and your purposes your plans are always better than our own. And so if we came in this, this morning with our own agenda, help us to leave with yours. Lord, help us to trust you today and to depend on you for all of our needs. Father, today I ask that you would help guard our hearts, that you would protect us from temptation. And not just the temptation to do what is wrong, but also the, the temptation to not do what is right. Help us to respond in the right way to the circumstances and people and situations you've put in front of us. And help us to depend on your power as we seek to live faithfully for you. I pray that this message and this time together would be for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. We're going to stretch a little bit. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me this morning as I read today's passage aloud. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 29 through 36. And uh, on the surface, what seems like maybe a little bit more of a confusing passage, I think will make sense before our time's over today. And so this is what we read. As the crowd pressed in on Jesus... He said, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. And what happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. The Queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have 
is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word today. Amen? All right, you may be seated. And so what's the, the scenario here? What's the scene? What's happening? Well, the crowds of people uh, were pressing in on Jesus. The crowds were growing, but Jesus uh, was not impressed by the big crowds because he knew something that his disciples didn't know. He knew what was in their hearts. We get the sense that the 12, uh, Jesus' inner circle, um, were easily impressed by Jesus' growing popularity. They were easily swayed by success. And so in order to give them some insight into what was really happening as they ministered to the masses and the seriousness of faithfully sharing God's word, Jesus used three powerful illustrations. And I want to unpack those illustrations with you this morning. And so if you're taking notes, um, illustration number one is the illustration of Jonah. It's the illustration of Jonah. And we read about this in the first two verses, but also verse 32. And so 29 through 30 says, As the crowds pressed in on Jesus, he said, This evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. And what happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. And so as the crowds are pressing in, instead of encouraging the crowd or taking a moment to celebrate how many people were there, you know, sometimes we put too much stock in numbers and not enough stock in in sincerity, Jesus said, this generation is an evil generation. So can you imagine this for just a moment? The, the crowds of people gathering around Jesus, getting closer to Jesus, and the first thing that he says at this point is, this generation is an evil generation. A bunch of unbelievers and fence-sitters were just following Jesus around, and instead of approving of their lifestyle and affirming their behaviors, Jesus called them out. As we talked about last week, there are no fence-sitters in the kingdom of God. Disciples are people who are fully committed to Jesus. Disciples are people who learn from Jesus to live like Jesus. They're not here for the show. They're here for Jesus. Well, he then went on to explain why he was so critical of this particular generation. He said, they just keep on asking me to show them another sign. They just want to be wowed. These people were looking to to be moved in some way. The things they had seen Jesus do up until this point, it just wasn't enough for them. I think they'd grown numb to it, honestly. Jesus turned water into wine. It's pretty amazing, right? Do you know anyone who's done that? I've been to a lot of birthday parties. Never seen it. Jesus healed the blind. He healed the sick. He raised people from the dead. He spoke with a kind of authority they had never heard before. These things Although amazing, and they are, they weren't enough for this group. The crowd just wanted another sign. But Jesus said that no additional signs like this would be given. In fact, he said there's only one sign that was needed, and Jesus referred to this sign as the sign of Jonah. You see, for the crowds that day, this sign hadn't happened yet. But for us, on this side of history, it has so what exactly is this sign of Jonah? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, what happened to Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. Now, Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish, and according to Jonah chapter 2, um, he should have died. 
but he didn't. Instead of dying, a miracle happened. And so after three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, the fish spit him up onto the land, and he went to Nineveh where he preached the message that God had given him. Now, that is the Cliff Notes version. There's a lot of resisting, right? A lot of disobedience wrapped up into this story, but ultimately God's will uh, would not be thwarted. His will prevailed. So the fish spit him up on land. He goes to preach the message. And this amazing event, the Bible says that when he preached, it was a sign that God had sent him. And so Jesus explained to his crowd that he was going to give the people the sign of Jonah. And the implication, which is clearly seen in Matthew's account, is that he was going to be miraculously raised from the dead. A resurrection miracle was part of God's redemptive plan. This was the one sign that the people needed to know that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus is greater than Jonah. And they were about to witness this with their own eyes. Friends, the resurrection is the bedrock of our faith. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. We sang about that so much this morning, and I'm wondering if you've made that connection. One author said that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity crumbles. I think he stole these words from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, Paul said, And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. So these are heavy words from Paul. What is he saying here? Surely he's saying that not everything that we do is useless if the resurrection didn't really happen. He's saying that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything that we affirm to be true, our our faith in Jesus, the mission of the local church, the importance of instilling faith in our children and our grandchildren, uh, your participation even in worship this morning, you know, getting up early, brushing your teeth, doing your hair, putting clothes on. If the resurrection didn't happen, then all of that, guess what? It's useless. And you're wasting your time. The resurrection is the bedrock of our faith. And so in today's passage, Jesus pointed to his coming resurrection as the ultimate piece of evidence for his claims about being the Son of God. This is the one sign that the crowd needed. This is the one sign that we need. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of the evidence that we have today to support um, the resurrection. And I believe there's so much substantial evidence for this. But I'll briefly mention just a few things. And I like to call these the three E's of the resurrection. Three words that start with the letter E. Empty, eyewitnesses, and early. So evidence for the resurrection of Jesus includes, but is not limited to, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. The the disciples of Jesus, they all testified that the tomb was empty. Eyewitness after eyewitness. And that leads us to the second word, which is eyewitness. Hundreds of eyewitnesses saw the risen Lord with their own eyes. And then you have the fact that the accounts of the resurrection were early. So as soon as followers of Jesus realized what had happened, that Jesus had truly conquered the grave, they immediately started telling anyone they could. The reports were verbal, but they were also written down for us. And that's what we're reading today. And so the first illustration that Jesus gave was all about his future work on the cross and the resurrection, the sign of Jonah, the one sign that that we all need to believe in and follow Jesus. And so are you tracking with me so far? 
They were looking for more signs like healing and, and things like that. Turning water into wine, he says, no, there's only one sign that you really need. And that leads us to the second illustration, and that's the illustration of Solomon. Again, he takes us to the Old Testament, um, but his words in Luke 11, verses 31 and 32, says, the queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. And now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. And so again, taking us back to the Old Testament, here Jesus referenced back to 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, Here you you can go and read the passage for yourself, but I'll give you the cliff notes. Uh, The queen of Sheba had heard about Solomon's fame and his wisdom, so she decided to travel the many miles uh, to Jerusalem to meet him face to face. And she was willing to travel to the ends of the earth just to hear God's wisdom through Solomon. And after meeting him, this was her response. I'm going to read this for you. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. She exclaimed to the king, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day listening to your wisdom. Praise the Lord your God who delights in you as and has placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. And so the queen of Sheba, here in the Old Testament, traveled miles and miles to hear God's wisdom through Solomon. But then you jump over to Luke chapter 11, many years later, many generations later, um, the very Son of God was standing in their midst teaching about the kingdom of God, and the people wouldn't have it. So you have this queen of Sheba who traveled miles and miles to hear God's wisdom through Solomon, and here you have the Son of God standing in the flesh, preaching about the kingdom of God, and it wasn't enough for the people. Their hearts were hard. Even if Jesus had performed another miracle or given another sign, it wouldn't have changed things for them. You see, what they needed was the living wisdom of God, but they were content with their stale religious traditions, man-made tradition, man-made rules and, and laws. And so he says the queen of Sheba can condemn their generation because they were unwilling to open their hearts to the good news of Jesus. And Jesus is so much greater than Solomon. And then he goes back to Jonah for a moment. He says Jonah can condemn their generation as well because he preached the word of God and the people of Nineveh repented. But the crowds of people who listened to Jesus that day, they refused to repent and believe. And this was Jesus' condemnation of the time that he lived in. And friends, I believe it's still the problem that we see in our world today. God has faithfully revealed himself to us. And he's done this primarily in two ways. Through his general revelation, which is through his creation. And through his special revelation, which is his word. So through his creation and through his word, he's revealed himself to us. And yet people still refuse to repent and believe. God doesn't want any of us to simply be part of the crowd. To show up each week, 
to hear a sermon, hear a message, go home, and that's all she wrote. That's not God's plan. He has so much more in store for you. He wants us to open our hearts to his word and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's not be the crowd that simply wanted to see another sign. Let's be satisfied with who God is and what he's done. And that leads us to the third and final illustration, and that is the illustration of light. And we read about this in verses 33 through 36. Jesus said, No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its lights can be seen by all who enter the house. And then then he makes it personal. He's talking directly to the crowd. He says, Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it's unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. And here's the, the warning. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you're filled with light with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. So Jesus here explained why people in general don't see the most important sign. Why we miss Jesus. And the reason people sit on the fence and refuse to commit to Jesus is not because of insufficient evidence. The the evidence is there. And it's not because the evidence isn't convincing. Here it is. Jesus said the problem is with us. The problem is people. The problem is, is the human heart. The fault isn't with Jesus. He's the light that's been put on a stand for all to see, for the world to see. The problem is with us. The resurrection is the shining light to the world. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is not a secret. But the reason people refuse to repent and believe and confess Christ and be baptized into Christ and live their life for him, the reason people decide to be fence-sitters is because their hearts are hard. It's kind of like trying to plant a seed in bad soil. What's going to happen if you plant a seed in bad soil? Well, it's not going to take root. It's not going to grow. It's not going to be healthy. It's going to be choked out. It's going to die. Bad, uh, dim eyes, a hard heart, cause our lives to remain in darkness. But good eyes, a heart that chooses to hear and receive God's word, good eyes allow God's truths to affect every aspect of life. And so Jesus was explaining to the crowd that day and to us that people are the problem. You see, we can't blame others for not prioritizing God's word and his will in our lives. This is something I hear so often as well. When someone isn't growing in their faith or when they're experiencing a faith crisis, they they typically point the blame to other people. Maybe they point it to their church. Well, the messages just aren't what I need right now. The worship isn't that great. They point the blame to family members. Maybe a crisis within their family. They point their fingers at at friends. They, They never take responsibility. Friends, we cannot blame others for not prioritizing God's word and his will in our life. In other words, we can't point the finger to someone else in an effort to excuse ourselves for having a lack of dedication, zeal, and love for the Lord. Jesus taught us that to inherit eternal life, we must love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the power of the resurrection is what initially moves us to love and serve the Lord 
in this way. That's the sign that we need. The last two verses uh, come as a warning. And there's a lot of encouragement in this, I think, but, but this is a harder message uh, for some to swallow today. Verses 35 and 36, Jesus said, Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. In other words, you're going through the motions. Many of you may say that you're a believer, may say that you're a follower of Jesus, but, but here's the warning. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. Make sure that you're not deceiving yourselves. If you're filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. And so the picture here is of someone who is fully committed to Jesus and their life is, is radiant for Christ. People don't see them, they see Jesus. When someone interacts with you, when someone talks with you, do they see Jesus or do they see you? These verses, again, act as a warning, but also as a challenge for all of us today. Be careful that you don't think you have the light when you're actually living in darkness. It's possible for a person to believe they are living in the light, to believe that they're saved, but to be living in the dark. So I believe God wants each one of us to examine our lives today by asking this question. Are you ready for it? What is standing in the way of me being fully committed to Jesus? What is standing in the way? Is it another sign that I'm looking for? Is it another piece of evidence? Remember what Jesus said in last week's message, if we're not with him, then we're, we're against him. And while you're waiting on the fence, that's a dangerous place to be. So allow God to help you get rid of all the dark corners so that your entire life can be a living testimony to who Jesus is and to what he's done for the world. I think the dangerous prayer that David prayed uh, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, that needs to be our prayer today. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That needs to be our prayer today. Search me, O God. See if there's anything in my life that I'm doing, that I'm saying, that I'm thinking that would be offensive to you. Help me to walk in step with the leading of your spirit. What's amazing about God is that we can come to him exactly as we are. And he's so good. He's so good that, that he doesn't just leave us there. He transforms us from the inside out. He performs open heart surgery. He makes us more like Christ day after day, step after step. And I, I think that's why the Apostle Paul refers to the Christian life so much, uh, so often as a walk. It's not a run. It's not a sprint. It, it's, it's, it's a marathon, and it's one that we walk. We take it step by step. And if you're anything like me, some days it feels like you're two step forwards and, and one step back. But it's one step after another. And Jesus is saying today, take a step. Take a step towards me. God is faithful and just to always offer his grace, his forgiveness, his guidance, his, his wisdom. And so instead of responding like the people in the crowd who only wanted to see more signs, we have the complete story. We can say, God, search my heart. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. 
Help me to put my trust in you, the author and perfecter of my faith. Because in Jesus, we have that living hope that we just sang about. That's one of my favorite songs that we sing, living hope. It's extremely biblical. And so to wrap up the message, I actually want to share with you the passage that, that I believe that song comes from. Uh, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, talks about this living hope that we have right now, uh, being a part of God's forever family in Christ. He, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are sealed by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then it's like Peter was just getting started. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. He says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. He says, I, I know you're going through a difficult season right now. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, uh, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's why on our worst days, we can be full of joy. <laughs> That's why on our worst days that we can praise God and we can live for God. You don't have to fake it. It's the reality of the Christian life. Then he ends here in verse 8, though you have not seen me, you love me. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The one sign that we really need is the resurrection. Because of Jesus' work on the cross and the resurrection, we can have what Peter referred to as a living hope. It's a living testimony that points anyone and everyone in our circle of influence back to the one that our hope is in. Amen.